Father, we are, uh, we are appreciative of to be able to gather as a body. Lord, we are grateful for the gift of one another in our lives, in each of our lives, Lord. Lord, you, uh, you've designed your church perfectly. Lord, each part gifted in a different way, sort of contributing to the overall health of the body as it moves forward. Lord, you blessed us with a fellowship uh, of your Holy Spirit. And we are grateful for that. We don't want to uh, forget it. We don't want to neglect it. We don't want to take it for take advantage of it, so to speak, or take it for advantage. We're thankful for the gift of salvation that is ours, undeserved, freely given in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, we do pray, Lord, that you would bless us with the reality of your presence this morning, that you would minister great truth to our hearts. Lord, you draw us to yourself, and you'd speak your holy word. And so, uh, humbly, we come, we sit under it. Minister to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we are in the book of Zechariah, or Zechariah, I guess, if you pronounce it as it's spelled. Uh, we're in the book of Zechariah. You can begin the process of turning there. If you don't have a Bible, you can look at one of the chairs kind of in front of you or to the left of you. You'll notice there is a Bible there, and it lists the page number. If you have your own Bible, we encourage you to bring it uh, so you can become increasingly familiar with it. But here we are, we are in, we've been working our way through the minor prophets. There's 12 books in our Bibles that are referred to as the minor prophets, as opposed to, as you might imagine, the major prophets. Uh, there's five of those. And here, as we've been looking at the minor prophets, we've come now to this book of Zechariah. And we started it last week when we were together, and I, I wanted to give you quick, three quick kind of uh, reviews of what we learned last week in our introduction. The first simply is that this is a post-exilic book. This is a book that came after the period of captivity that the Jewish people were sent into. You may recall that for years and years and years, hundreds of them, God had been calling to the Jewish people uh, to turn from their sin, to repent of their sin. They refused to do so, particularly the sin of idolatry. And eventually God said he would send them into a period of captivity, a period of judgment, and it was during that period of time that they essentially learned the lesson that idolatry doesn't pay, so to speak. And they uh, abandoned that idolatry. They were brought back into the land. Uh, and that is why the book of Zechariah is called post-exilic. It was written after that period of exile. The second thing that we learned in our study is that the book of Zechariah, is, he was, or the prophet Zechariah, was a contemporary of the prophet Haggai. And one of the reasons why we normally we've been doing three minor prophets, then go back to the New Testament. But the book of Zechariah is so similar in so many ways to the book of Haggai. You almost have to study the two of them together. Uh, and so Haggai and Zechariah, they are contemporaries. So obviously the things we learned in that particular book are going to carry over. And then the last thing that we began to consider uh, is that message that Zechariah began his book with. And that was simply this, that God wasn't just simply interested in the Jewish people rebuilding the temple. That's what the book of Haggai was about, the Jewish people rebuilding the temple. You've stopped building it. You're, you're building your own houses. It's time for you to get back to work. That thing that God had really moved in your heart to do, you've stopped doing. Let's get back to it. Now, if you just read, though, the book of Haggai, you could conclude that all God really cared about was the building getting built. 
The reality is that Zechariah began to point out, it's like, you can be busy about doing the work of God, but doing it with the wrong heart. And Zechariah is all about, get your heart right with the Lord. Come before him, get your heart right, and then we can talk about the work that you need to do for the Lord. And so those are kind of the, the three key things that I wanted to make sure we understood as we continued to go through the book. Ideally, we would come together for 15 hours, we'd study the whole book in one setting, and we'd get sort of this feel for it, but most people frown upon the 15-hour Bible study on a Sunday morning. Uh, and so we're, we're breaking it up into chunks. Today we'll pick up in verse 7 of chapter 1, one last review. You may remember I said that the book of Zechariah was filled with visions, these visions that he received from the Lord designed to teach people. Verse 7 is going to begin the first of those eight visions that are in uh, this particular book. And remember the, the contrast, uh, Haggai, they're contemporaries, Zechariah and Haggai, but the contrast is that our friend Haggai, God gave him, if you will, straightforward messages. This is the word of the Lord, tell the people this. And he would go forth, and he did that. And we saw he did that four times in his book of two chapters. Zechariah, even though he's a contemporary, even though he has the same message of encouragement, God worked in him to come to the people from a different angle. And rather than there being a word that was given to him to deliver in the form of a sermon, God gave Zechariah these visions, these pictures, which were designed to send a message to the people. So again, Haggai, this is what the Lord says. Our friend Zechariah, this is what the Lord showed me, if you will. And as we come now to verse uh, 7, we're going to become to those, the first of those visions that the Lord showed to this fellow Zechariah. And this is the vision of a man that is standing among a grove of, a grove of trees that are situated in a valley. All right, so you're like, huh, that's in Interesting. A vision of a man standing among a bunch of trees in a valley somewhere is the vision. So similar to the book of Daniel, where you have these symbols and this imagery, similar to the book of Revelation. And a lot of people will look at those books and they'll be like, I don't get it, too confusing, never read it again. All right? I don't think that's what God would have for us. I think God would have for us kind of plug away through it. Try to process it, compare it with other scriptures, and walk away with what it is that he wants to communicate to us. So again, we have this vision. Verses 8 to 13, they're going to provide us with the vision. Verses 14 to 17 will explain the vision to us. And so let's read through it. I need to put my eyes on. Here we go. Verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, and they said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? Verse 13, And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. 
And so the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry, but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion, and he will again choose Jerusalem. Pretty straightforward, we all have it? Perhaps not. Okay, so if you look at verse 1 for a moment, you'll notice there that we're given a time marker, a stamp, a date. And verse 1 says, in the, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius. Darius was a king, that was the reference point, and it was in the eighth month of that king's second year. Look at verse 7. We have, in the 24, on the 24th day of the 11th month, and again, we're talking about the second year of that King Darius. And so we have this time stamp. There's about a three-month period of time, almost four-month period of time, between the first word that was given in verse 1 and this vision that Zechariah receives here in verse 7. Now, you remember in what we studied last week, if you were with us, God came to Zechariah in the eighth month, and he, he told him, deliver this message to the people. You can be busy about the work of the Lord and still have the wrong heart. Let's get our hearts right. That's the message that he came to deliver. You remember he said there, return to me and I will return to you. We learned all of that stuff when we were together last week. Here now, as we move forward, we can uh, draw the conclusion that that's exactly what the people did. They heard what the Lord said to them through Zechariah. They returned to the Lord. They got their heart right with the Lord. And now the Lord is coming to reveal to them some additional things. And so the dating is, is important for that purpose. It gives us an idea of what took place during those three months that the people responded to Zechariah's initial message. And so then, with this heart that is right before the Lord, the Lord begins to communicate to them. And he begins to communicate to them his future plan for his people. It begins with, verse 8, a man riding on a red horse. It continues, that man is standing among the myrtle trees. It continues, those myrtle trees are in the glen. And then it goes on, it's still in verse 8, and behind that man are three other horses. Remember that man was on a horse. Three other horses, presumably with riders on them as well. We learn one other thing is the color of the horses. First guys is red, the other three are red, sorrel, and white. All right, that's the vision. That's what we have here. We got a man standing among trees in the glen with a bunch of horses with different colors that are given to us there. First, I will admit to you, there are some terms in here that I don't even know what they mean. I can read them, but I don't know what a glen is. I don't know what the color sorrel is, and so let's have a little bit of definitions here, all right? First, and I don't even know what a myrtle tree is, uh, although I'm told I have some myrtle trees in my backyard, all right? But I didn't know what myrtle trees were. So let's just break it down here. The first thing that we have is the glen. Anyone know what a glen is? Okay, some of you know. Um, it's a fella. He leads worship sometimes. He's a good guy. 
A glen is a deep, narrow valley or a ravine or a basin. We have a picture of a couple of glens. That's a glen there. That looks nice, huh? Do we have another glen? Show them another glen. We have another glen, all right, where the, the, ra the ravine is located there. Some of our versions that we're reading won't even use the word glen. It'll just use the word low places. Anybody have that in their Bibles? Low places listed there? Nobody? Somebody fake it? Just support me here through the process? Sure, I got it. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, so a glen. Next is a myrtle tree. Now, we have myrtle trees here in the United States. Uh, again, I have them in my backyard. Uh, they're what's called a crepe myrtle. My understanding is we're like the northern edge of where crepe myrtles will grow. They, they're really popular more in the south where it's a little bit warmer. Slightly different uh, version of the myrtle tree in Israel. We have some that are uh, unique to Israel. They grow, that looks a little bit taller um, because the perspective is down below. They grow about 10 feet tall. They have a laurel green leaf, which is kind of like the green leaves they would use to like crown the Olympic people in the old days or whatever. The leaf is an evergreen type of leaf, so it doesn't really fall off there. And then you'll see kind of white flowers, bunches of white flowers that are there as well. So that's specific to the area of Israel. And so this is almost certainly what is being referenced when it talks about myrtle trees being in this valley or in this particular uh, Glen here. You compare that tree, eight, ten feet tall, with the mighty cedars of Lebanon, which are like 200 feet tall, or with the, the strong and powerful oak tree, which is um, prevalent in Israel as well. Pretty tree, not much to this particular tree. All right, everybody got that? All right. The last thing that we have are these horses, uh, and we have the sorrel-colored horses. I didn't know what that was. Sorrel is kind of like orangey-brown. It's kind of like an autumn color orange that you see people wear. Some, I like that guy's shirt there. That looks pretty good. Um, there, that's kind of a sorrel as well. All right, so did anyone not know those terms? I didn't either. How many of you read through passages like this and don't stop and look it up? A few of you. It would do you well from time to time to look it up. All right, and that's what we do, because sometimes I think we read through it, I have no idea what it's saying, I'll just keep reading and I'll figure it out eventually, and then you never do. All right, and so take the time, look, dig into your Bibles, try and figure these things out, and any book you're reading, if you don't know the word, look it up. All right, no shame in that. All right, now, let's go back to this vision. What does it mean? Well, we have the myrtle trees, and the myrtle trees are going to become a key figure in this. There's a man that is standing among the myrtle trees. By comparison, the myrtle trees are relatively insignificant. They're no cedar of Lebanon. They're no mighty oak. It's a, regular, it's a relatively insignificant tree, 8 to 10 feet tall. However, it's an evergreen. That means, you know what that means? It remains evergreen is what an evergreen is. I know you may not think about it, but it remains evergreen. The idea here, then, that is being communicated, uh, the myrtle tree is going to represent the nation of Israel, seemingly insignificant in the world, both in population, both in geography, a nation no bigger than uh, the state of New Jersey, small, even New Jersey's a small state uh, in the United States. Israel's this small little nation, especially when you compare it with the other nations of the world, when you compare it with the other empires that were in the world. But it is an evergreen, again, which means it remains evergreen. And Israel, fascinating, has 
remarkably been able over the millennia, over thousands and thousands of years, to demonstrate this ability to remain. Despite the fact that nation upon nation upon nation over the history of the world has come against Israel and said, we're going to destroy Israel, there were nations that took a pact that said, we are going to wipe Israel off the face of the earth and we're going to drive them into the sea. The day that they became a nation again in 1948, the nations of the world around them, five nations around them, decided they were going to destroy it before it had any opportunity to even be anything. And remarkably, they lost that battle. How does a nation, which isn't even a nation, which doesn't have any sort of, sort of a military, how does it defend itself against five surrounding nations? Well, it has this remarkable ability to sustain itself and tendency to continue on, I believe, because it has the hand of God on it, the blessing of God on it. And so the first message that is communicated with this vision and through the imagery, if you will, of the myrtle tree is simply this. It's the unexpected staying power of the Jewish people throughout history uh, and throughout that part of the world. Think about the nation of Israel. For 2,000 years, 1,900 years essentially, had no place to call its own. And typically when that happens, after a few generations, that, that group of people, for instance, if there was no Ireland, eventually the Irish people would begin to, uh, to assimilate with the other cultures that they moved into. And yet the Jewish people didn't have a home for 1,900 years, and yet they maintained their identity. And they continued on, and here they are at the end of World War II, when people gave all that they could to destroy them and wipe them from the earth, here they are being rebirthed as a nation, just out of nowhere. Again, the remarkable, unexpected staying power of the Jewish people, and particularly of the nation of Israel. They're represented, I think, by the myrtle tree. The myrtle tree, evergreen, but it has a blossom of these white flowers. Interesting thing about these white flowers, much like potpourri, when you take those flowers, you crush them up a bit, they send off this beautiful fragrance. And just again, like the nation of Israel, that unexpected grace of God that is upon them, that they experience, especially in their times of affliction, and the glory of God that comes forth. Next thing that we see about this myrtle tree is that it was in the glen. It was in the low place. And in the context of this book, that low place represents the place that Israel now, in this book, now found itself. You remember the discouragement that was expressed in, the, in our study of the book of Haggai? Look at us. What are we doing? We're out here. We're trying, and we're never going to be as great as we once were or whatever. They were in a low place. They were still presently under the sub subjection of a foreign king. Remember, the king said they could go back to Israel, but you're still under our control. And so here is Israel, the myrtle tree, in this glen, in this low place. And so this is a vision about the nation of Israel struggling to recover from the low place they found themselves as a result of their subjugation to a Gentile power. Now the vision goes on, and it talks about four horses and their riders. Now we're not actually told that there's four riders, but that's, that's assumed. When it says they're standing there, the horse is the one standing, and the rider is sitting atop that horse. We're not told about all four of the, the riders, but we are told about one of the four riders. Verse 8, it says, And behold, a man riding on a red horse. 
Just glance down to verse 11 for a moment. There we're told who that man is. Verse 11 tells us, and they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. We're told there's a guy standing among the myrtle trees. Verse 11 tells us that the guy is the angel of the Lord. Catch my words there. The angel of the Lord. Now, the Bible talks a lot about angels and angel, and it also talks about the angel of the Lord. And there are many examples in the Old Testament, and so you want to read carefully when you're reading through if it refers to the angel of the Lord or it refers to an angel of the Lord. There's many examples in the Old Testament of a person's encounter with a heavenly man, heavenly a vision of some sorts, but not necessarily just a vision, where that man is referred to as the angel of the Lord. Now let's work through our Bibles a little bit. You remember the story in Genesis chapter 16, where Sarah's servant, a woman by the name of Hagar, was sent out from the family. You can read the whole story for yourself again in Genesis 16. And how, while she was sent out, she encountered the angel of the Lord. You may remember the story. She found that angel by a spring of water in the wilderness. And they have an interaction. And after that, after the angel of the Lord ministers to her, she responds by declaring these words, Genesis 16, 13. She says, you are the God of the seeing. Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. She calls that angel of the Lord God. She went on, she names the spring or well that she was sitting by. She calls it Ber Laharoi. And that word means the well of the living one, capital L and O, that sees me. A few chapters later, we have the story of Abraham. This is Genesis chapter 18. And there, as we read about Abraham, it says that he was entertaining three men, one of which is clearly different. You can read the story for yourself, where one of those men is clearly different from the other two men. That chapter begins by saying this, and the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. It ends by saying this, and the Lord went his way. And so that, that man that was different from the other two is the angel of the Lord, who is called the Lord. A few more chapters after this, Abraham again interacts with the angel of the Lord. There the angel speaks the, of the word that had been spoken, and he refers to it as my voice, referring to God speaking. I'll read it to you. He says, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. And as the sand that is on the seashore, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Not an angel's voice, but God's voice. Exodus chapter 3, you remember Moses encountered a bush that was burning and yet was not consumed. Verse 2 of that passage tells us, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush, and behold, again, the bush was burning but not consumed. That angel of the Lord would call out to Moses, you may remember, saying, Come near, but take off your sandals because the ground in which you stand is holy ground. He would go on to say, Moses say, Well, well, who should I say sent me? Who are you? And he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So there's some examples. You can continue to make your way through the Old Testament. 
But the point is this, there is a distinct difference in our Bibles between an angel of the Lord of the Lord and the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is, if you will, an appearance of God in the Old Testament. It's theologically, it's oftentimes referred to as a theophany, and some people refer to it as a Christophany, that is Christ appearing before he came in human form at what we celebrate at Christmas. And so when Zechariah, in our passage, what he, what he is seeing, therefore, in this vision is God in the midst of the myrtle trees, and the myrtle trees representing Israel, and the myrtle trees, or Israel, being in the low place. And so it is God in the midst of his people, despite the low place, that they find themselves. And that must have been a tremendous encouragement to Zechariah. And it must have been a tremendous encouragement to the discouraged people that Haggai and Zechariah sought to minister to. Because there was this wondering, where is God? And why are we even here? And can we do this? And can we accomplish this? And here comes a message, I'm with you. I'm with you in the midst of this low place that you find themselves. The Lord himself was standing there amongst the myrtle trees. I think it's encouraging for a second reason. I started today by recalling or recounting the initial message that Zechariah gave uh, to the people, verses 1 through 6. You remember in verse 3 of that message, the Lord said this, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. And so this initial vision would be encouraging because the exact thing that God said he would do I'll return to you if you return in your heart to me. You're doing the work of the Lord, but your heart's far from me. You bring your heart back to me, and I'll return to you. You return to me. God was true to his word. He did exactly what he said he will do. There's a lesson for us there. God will always be true to his word. He tells us, he told them, you draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. He told them, he tells us, you return to me, and I will return to you. God did that very thing here, and this vision is a demonstration of it. He has returned. He's in the midst of his people. Now, as you can imagine, Zechariah is a bit confused. I love this about many of the prophets. Here we have an example of Zechariah. He doesn't get it. So what does he do? He says, I don't get it. I think that's cool. I appreciate when people don't know something, and they, they uh, make it very clear. I don't understand. I have no idea what is going on. He says that in so many words. Verse 9, he says, what are these, my Lord? So what's going on here? We got some trees. We got a glen. We got some horses. We got some people. What are these, my Lord? He says there. To which the angel, verse 9, continues. And the angel says, well, I'll show you what they are. Or an angel says that. Now, before that angel, however, is able to explain this vision to him, Look at verse 10. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered. It's as if he says, I'll take this one. And he answers it instead of the angel that's standing next to Zechariah. And he'll tell the answer, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. Now, again, we know who the angel standing among the myrtle trees is. That's the angel of the Lord. And so it's the Lord himself. The Lord himself says, I'll take this one. I'll answer it. They are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. They are the horsemen. 
And these horsemen on the three horses that we mentioned there are heavenly angels. I know some of you are thinking, has this guy been doing drugs or something like that? I have not been, all right? I'm doing my best here to bring it through, but I'm looking at some of your eyes. Thinking, I have no idea what he's talking about. These horsemen are heavenly angels. And as it says, they were sent on a reconnaissance mission. They were to go and patrol the whole earth, as angels do. I don't know how they do that, but that's how they do it. And they were to bring back a report of their findings uh, that they're going to present. They are sent to spy the earth. They're to come back, report to the Lord the condition of things in world affairs. In that day, verse 11, that's what they said they did. We've patrolled the earth, and here's our conclusion. The whole earth remains at rest. What exactly does that mean? Different versions will use a different word there as they attempt to translate the Hebrew. Here are some of those other translations. The whole world is at ease. The whole world is at peace. The whole world is in tranquility or experiencing tranquility. Some other versions, the whole world is inactive and or, and or the whole world is silent. Now, typically, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Oh, the whole world's at rest. Fantastic. Finally, here. But what becomes evident as we continue our way through the passage is that from God's perspective, this is not a good thing. Look down at verse 15 for a moment there. You see that the response of the Lord, he says, I am exceedingly angry with the nation, uh, with the nations that are at ease. And then I'll go on and I'll give his explanation as to why. And so the nations of the world are at ease, but the context, God's people were struggling. God's people were in the midst of great difficulty, and the nations of the world were at ease, were silent, were inactive, inactive, doing nothing to alleviate the struggle that God's people were experiencing. And so these angels then, they come, they deliver this report, and again, the result is that it stirs up the anger of the Lord. And showing his heart of compassion for his people, the angel of the Lord cries out, catch this, the angel of the Lord, which I would say to you represents Christ, the Son, cries out to God the Father, and he says, How long, O Lord of hosts, will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? Now that phrase, no mercy, perhaps that jogs something in your memory. You remember in our study a little while back, it was uh, three years ago, if you've been with us, we were studying the book of Hosea, Hosea the prophet. I told you earlier, Zechariah is a post-exilic book. Hosea was a pre-exilic book. It was a book that came out before the Jews went off into captivity. And if it's a book that went out before the Jews went off into captivity, we can now conclude, just without remembering the book at all, well, if you tell me it's pre-exilic, then that means that Hosea was trying to call the people to repentance so that they wouldn't have to go off into exile. And in that particular book, that prophecy, God decided to use Hosea, his entire life, as a picture for the people. Look at my life and learn what it is that God wants to say to you. And he told Hosea, I want you to go and I want you to marry this woman who I already know is going to be unfaithful to you. And he does. And she's unfaithful. She conceives with these other men and these children are being born to her. And God tells her, that's, that's my relationship with the Jewish people. They're unfaithful to me and they're with all these other gods. 
he tells Hosea, I want you to name the kids the following. The first is a daughter. Her name is to be Lo Ruhamah, which means no mercy. A little bit later, he's going to have a son. His name is Jezreel, and the name Jezreel means not my people. And what Hosea, or what God is saying through Hosea, is that he is going to take his hand of blessing off the Jewish people. He's not going to show them the mercy that he's shown them for hundreds and thousands of years. They're not going to be his special people that he will guard and he will protect. He'll pull his hand off of them, and the result is going to be Hosea's message is the people are going to go off into captivity. And so Israel, in that case, through this low Ruhamah, Israel, in that case, her name was No Mercy. And here we are now in the book of, uh, what book are we in now? Zechariah. And in the book of Zechariah, he is saying, I will show mercy to Israel. My judgment is done, and I will now show mercy, and I will now protect her. Verse 12 says, Then the angel of the Lord says, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? God had relented of his anger. The people had come back into the land, and yet there were still difficulties. And that's what is being referenced here when the angel of the Lord asked the question, how long, O Lord? Now, there's a theological dilemma here. I, I hope you sense the tension. If the angel of the Lord is God in the flesh in the Old Testament, a theophany, an appearance of God in the Old Testament, then shouldn't he have known the answer to this question? Right? Are you with me? So if there's God in the flesh, shouldn't he already know this? And therefore, it can't be God in the flesh. Therefore, the angel of the Lord can't be God. Yet all those verses that I pointed to earlier made it very clear that these theophanies were indeed God in the flesh. Well, there's two ways that this is commonly approached. One is that the angel of the Lord that asked the question knew the answer to the question, but he posed it on behalf of those who didn't know the answer, you and I. And so as we sit here, we read it, we get an answer to a question that he asked on our behalf. That's how some people look at this. The alternative understanding is that there was a genuine level of not knowing on the part of the angel of the Lord. Now, again, some would suggest that if one of the key attributes of God is his omniscience, all-knowing, that's what omniscience means, that he is all-knowing, he knows all things, and that here is something the angel of the Lord doesn't know, therefore, the angel of the Lord can't be God. I don't think it necessarily has to be that way. Because there were things that even Jesus himself did not know, which are recorded for us in the Gospels. One example in particular was the day of his triumphant return, his second coming. You may, he was asked about this, and Jesus' response at that time was, No man knows the day of the, or the hour, not even the Son of Man, but the Father only. And so as we read through the Gospels, we study the Gospels, we know from our study of the Gospels that there were times when Jesus publicly manifested his divine knowledge and his divine power here on the earth. Miracles and the miraculous. We know that, we read our Gospels, we see that. However, on most occasions as we make our way through the Gospels, to use the language of the book of Hebrews, what we discover about Jesus is that his, he kept his own glory veiled. And so the, the Lord's lack of knowledge doesn't speak to his not being divine, but rather it speaks to him humbling himself 
and taking on the form of a servant, as Paul said in the book of Philippians chapter 2. And I think that's what we have here. Here the angel of the Lord, he expresses the lament of God for his people. He poses that question, how long, O Lord? And the answer, which isn't actually presented yet, but we see the answer in verse 13, it has the effect of bringing comfort to the angel. That is, it was a satisfactory answer to the, to the angel, and the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. We'll see it also, it prompts the angel to instruct Zechariah, verse 14. He tells Zechariah, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For a while I was angry, but a little they furthered the disaster. Now, from our study of the history of the people of Israel, what we know is that the Lord used the nations of the earth as his instruments to punish his people. I mentioned it earlier with, with Hosea. He warned this was coming, and he used those nations of the world as his instruments. Despite that fact, however, those very nations that God either raised up or he allowed to be raised up as his instruments, those nations were actually held accountable for their actions. Because among other reasons, they went far beyond what was necessary to discipline God's people. Look at verse 15. He says, while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. And so now then, while Israel struggles, those Gentile nations are at ease, remember, from a little bit earlier? While Israel is struggling, those Gentile nations ignore that struggle. They remain inactive. They remain silent. They remain at ease, as it says there. And God tells us here he was angry with those nations for that purpose. Verse 16 goes on. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. If you're a note taker in your Bible, jot down in the margin, see verse 3. Because in verse 3, he says, you return to me, I will return to you. This particular verse here tells us God returned to them. Therefore, that implies that they did what? They returned to God. Return to me and I will return to you. Verse 16 goes on. He says, my house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities will again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again comfort Jerusalem. I told you last week, Zechariah's name and his lineage offers us a clue to this book. Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edu. Again, if you break down each of those names, that means the Lord remembers and in his appointed time, he will bless. And here in this first vision, we see that the Lord reveals to Zechariah a message regarding that appointed time. A, a message regarding the fact that he's prepared and he's about to bless In his appointed time, the Lord, on behalf of his people, will establish all the blessings. Good? All right. He says in verse 16 that his house will be built in the land once more, referring to the temple, that it's going to be built in the land. And it's going to be on a grander scale 
than even the glory of King Solomon. That's exactly what it said in the book of Haggai, if you remember our study there. Again, remember the context. Zechariah and Haggai side by side with one another. And there, in that particular book, we saw the people were so dejected. This temple stinks. Here we are trying to build. It's never going to be any good. Why bother anymore? And here now, Zechariah comes in, and as part of this first vision, there's going to be a house that is rebuilt. It's going to be grander than anything that has ever been built before. Now, there was a partial fulfillment in Zechariah's day. You remember Zechariah, Haggai, Zerubbabel, and Joshua. There's a partial fulfillment of it. That temple, it took about four years for it to be rebuilt in that day, and it was rebuilt, and the people went back, and they worshiped there, and, and that was great. But the ultimate fulfillment of this particular temple that is being referenced here, if you read the book of Ezekiel, and again, prophecy with prophecy, and you read them all, and you put the pieces together. If you read there, Ezekiel chapter 40 to chapter 48. I encourage you to read that this week. And that will give a much greater description of what that future temple is going to be like and going to look like. And that future temple there is the temple that will be erected in the millennial kingdom. You remember the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ, where he will rule and reign on the earth. There will be a temple in that kingdom. That's what Ezekiel talks about, and I believe that's the ultimate fulfillment of what Zechariah is talking about. That's the first thing he promises. The second thing, in addition to the rebuilt temple, is that the borders of Jerusalem will be expanded significantly. So verse 16, it begins by telling how th there's going to be a measuring line that will be stretched out over Jerusalem to sort of all that it encompasses. Verse 17 goes on and talks about God's cities overflowing with prosperity and with his comfort. Again, think of the context. In light of the difficult days in which Zechariah's listeners were living, remember they were in the glen. They were in the low place. They were in the valley. They were in subjugation to the Gentile powers. In light of those difficult days, Zechariah speaks this message to them that the day is coming, a day of prosperity, a day of comfort, where Jerusalem it will be expanded beyond its borders. And so this, again, would be an especially comforting promise that Zechariah delivers. Rather than further judge the Jewish people, the Lord was about to show the people of Jerusalem and Judah his mercy. He was about to intervene once again on their behalf. He was about to restore his people, restore their cities, restore the house of God, and the people once more would prosper. That's the promise he's about to deliver to them. Now, I want to go on to this next one. And I think it's important because they, they go side by side, and this will be rather quick, this next vision that he receives. It's in verse 18. He says, and so I lifted my eyes up. Notice no date. Scholars think that uh, Zechariah received all eight of these visions that we're going to study over the next bunch of weeks in the same evening. All right. And so we, he had this first vision. The, the man among the myrtle trees goes right into this second vision. He says, I lifted my eyes and saw and behold four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. This is the second of Zechariah's eight visions. 
And I believe it runs right into or from the first one because the two are very, very closely connected. And so the first vision, that while the Gentile nations were at ease, God's people struggled, that angered the Lord, and he was going to deal with those Gentile nations. That's the first vision. The second one, here's how he's going to deal with those nations. It begins, notice verse 18, it begins with a vision of four horns, and then look at verse 20, it includes a vision of four craftsmen, or smiths, I think some of our versions use here. Now the horn in uh, Bible imagery, and particularly in prophetic imagery, but, but not just in prophetic imagery, you can, you'll see it in the Psalms, you'll see it in examples in the narratives, uh, the historical books that are in our Bible. The horn is representative, or it speaks of strength. It speaks of authority. It's also often associated with a nation or a government, and they are referred to as a horn. So here we have this image of four horns, four authorities, four nations, if you will. Again, the horn, a symbol of power, authority, or government. We're actually told that this is the meaning of the horn. So we don't even, in this case, have to just look at other passages and see what it meant there to apply what it means here. Because if you look at verse 19, Zechariah again, I don't know what I'm looking at. What are these? He asks that question. And then he is told, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. These are those nations. There's four horns. They're nations that have scattered Jerusalem. Therefore, these are the four nations that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Now, scholars disagree on what four nations is Zechariah referencing or is this vision referencing. Many conclude at least two of them must be the nations that led them into exile, which would be the Assyrians in 722 and the Babylonians in 586. And so some conclude that it's referring to them and who the other two is, they're not certain. Others conclude that this vision goes in line with a more popular vision that many of you may be familiar with, and that is the, the two visions that Daniel received in the book of Daniel. A lot of us have read the book of Daniel, it's a popular book. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, he has these two particular visions. In Daniel chapter 2, the vision is actually given to the Babylonian king, a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And he sees this freaky image. It really troubles him. It's this huge image standing there. It's kind of an image of a man. But the head of this man is made of gold. The chest is made of silver. The midsection is made of bronze. And then the feet are kind of a mixture of bronze and clay. And he's troubled by it. He doesn't know what it means here. And Daniel, the prophet, is used by God to reveal to him what it means. He says this, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the king of gold, or the uh, head of gold. Verse 39 of that passage, he says, Another kingdom inferior to you shall arrive. That's the chest of silver. And yet a third kingdom, that's the bronze, and there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. And so he, he makes it clear, Daniel, you're the king, you're the head. There's a kingdom coming after you, and another one coming after you, and another one, four kingdoms, one replacing the other. Daniel 7, Daniel speaks of a similar succession of empires. That's the uh, account there of four great beasts. 
And most scholars believe that these four uh, empires refer to the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and the Roman Empire. And that what Zach many scholars believe that what Zechariah is seeing here with these four horns corresponds with what Daniel saw in his particular prophecy. We can't say for certain is that it refers to those that have scattered Israel and Judah. Why can we say that? Because verse 19 says that. These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Sometimes people uh, suspects where you have to go to other passages of scripture and see what it meant there and how it might apply here. But there are other instances where it's very, very clear. This is one of them. These are they that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. The vision, though, it doesn't stop there. It's not just a vision about those that have scattered Israel. It stops with those that scattered Israel being held responsible for that. And earlier I mentioned the four craftsmen or the four blacksmiths. Look at verse 20, verse 21. That's where they come in. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. So the horns are those that scattered Judah, verse 21. The craftsmen are those that will terrify those that scattered Judah. So let's put these two visions together. In the first vision, God expresses his anger against Israel's enemy. Here now, in the second vision, he shows Israel how he will discipline those nations that made themselves the enemy of Israel. And so, if the first vision's ultimate fulfillment is in the millennium, and it's yet future, then I think we can conclude that the second one is still ultimately ahead of us. And I would suggest to you it's referring to the destruction of the revived Roman Empire that we read about, or we can draw our conclusion in the book of Revelation, the book of Thessalonians, and in some of the, the prophecies in the late Gospels that Jesus delivered to us, Matthew 24, and elsewhere. So let's cut to the chase. Amen? Amen, please. The second vision is meant to communicate to God's people that he was going to raise up armies that would destroy these four Gentile empires that came against his people because Israel's enemies are God's enemies. Then and now, Israel's enemies are God's enemies. And here, God promises to break the power of those who use their power against his people. Now, there's a general truth there, which I think applies to the nation of Israel, but I think there is also an application there for you and I. We are not specifically God's Jewish children. That being said, I do think that we can make application to our lives, and that is this. To quote the apostle, excuse me, the prophet Isaiah, he said this, no weapon that is formed against us shall stand. That's our application of this particular passage. You go on and quote Isaiah further. He said, and all who rage against the Lord will come to him and be put, uh, be put to shame. So the passage then in Zechariah, fulfilled in the Jewish people, but applied to you and I in God's church as well. Throughout the millennia, enemies have risen up against God's church. And that's not just history. That's continued to go on to this day. 
and honestly, people, we talk about here in the United States, the great persecution that we're experiencing. Frankly, it doesn't compare with the persecution that many of our brothers and sisters this day are experiencing in other parts of the earth. But throughout the millennia, enemies have risen up against God's church from all direction. And there are times when it, it appears that God's church is going to be sort of wiped from the face of the earth or wiped from the map as nations have tried to do with the nation of Israel. And yet, his church remains. And I'm reminded of Jesus' words. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. And that's the testimony of history. That's the testimony of scripture. And I would suggest to you that's the application of this particular passage. There are times in our lives when it feels like an entire world is coming against us. And perhaps it's because of our faith. And they're coming against us to destroy our faith and to get it out of the, the public sphere. And you can have your faith in your own little home. And even that sometimes seems like it's being threatened. There are times when it feels like that. There are other times when we're just living our lives. And we're going to work. And we feel overwhelmed by it there. And we feel like we're the only one there. And we feel like I'm trying to live my life as a Christian. And nobody else is interested in it. And I feel I'm about to lose my mind and I'm not going to be very Christian much longer. And we wonder, can I make it in this particular place with what's going on inside of me and the way that people are kind of coming against me here? The gates of hell will not prevail. And in an instance like that, or when it's with your family, and you're the only Christian, or maybe you and your wife and you're, you know, the kids you're seeking to raise are the only ones, and you go to the cousin's Christmas thing, and you're the only one there, and you're like, you know, this doesn't feel very Christ-like Christmas. I don't get it. How did this become a big drinking celebration at the Christmas party, the family Christmas party? And you're sitting there on the side, and people think you're the weird one. I'm a Christian. I'm trying to honor Christ at his party that we're throwing for him, and I'm the weird one? And you feel like, you know what? I shouldn't even bother going anymore. Or, you know, I may I'll just give in and be like everybody else. The gates of hell shall not prevail. And you feel like you're alone. Remind yourself of the vision of the myrtle trees. Jesus Christ is right there in the midst of that with you. He promises you he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. You can fix your eyes on him. You can make your way to the bathroom and say, Lord, you got to help me. I, I say the bathroom, that's my quiet place. You, you, Lord, you got to help me with these people I love as family members. I'm required by blood to love them, and I do, but I can't take it much longer. I need your help. And God is gracious. God is merciful, and he's kind, and he'll show up. And it will reveal to you, I'm here with you in the midst of this. Keep your eyes on me. There is a day that is coming. It feels like you're about to crash and burn. You won't. Trust me. Amen? Amen. I hope that's a little bit encouraging. I know it's a weird passage looking at these kind of these prophecies a little bit and trying to figure them out a little. But I do believe it's God's word. I believe that all scripture is God-breathed. I believe his Holy Spirit is our teacher. And we can always return to him and say, all right, Lord, I don't know if that great guy has it. But... Ultimately, you're my teacher, Lord. Would you help me kind of understand this and apply this to my life? And I believe God is faithful, and he will do that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that reality and that truth. We thank you that you'll never leave us or forsake us. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is the down payment of heaven. And if heaven can't be without your presence, then neither can we as your children. 
And so, Lord, there's probably a bunch that is ahead of us. Some of us are dealing with a lot of things right now that feel as if they're going to overcome us. They won't. Encourage us in that truth. That we might stand firm in an in a evil day, in a dark day. And be the light that you would have us to be. And Lord, our desire is we know there is other people that are dealing with things and struggling with things and wondering about things. Lord, our desire is that in the midst of darkness, we might shine as a bright light. Not to draw people to ourselves, but to point them to you. That they might experience the hope, the peace, the joy, the clarity that comes from being in right relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bless us, your people, today with a greater uh, kind of hold on that wonderful truth. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.